0: had performed everything according to the law of the Lord they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth and the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him this is the word of the Lord be to God. you may be seated well, thanks guys well if you have a Bible and uh, if you wouldn't mind taking it out and opening to Luke chapter 2, where we're going to be this morning, and feel free to pull your sermon outline out as well, if that'll help you follow along. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can pull it up on your phone, Uh, just download the YouVersion app or something similar, or just Google Luke 2, and you can follow along with us this morning. Well, today we're beginning a new year uh, in 2020, and we're going to focus this whole year on Jesus in the sermons, and Jesus in the Gospels. And I had someone ask me, so what year are you not going to focus on Jesus, so I don't come that year. Which, you know, is a a funny answer, but I do want to especially focus this year on the person of Jesus, as we see in the Gospels, and look at how we follow him and how we follow his life. And so for the first 12 weeks of the year, between Christmas and Easter, between Jesus' birth and his death and resurrection, we're going to look at the chronology of Jesus' life here on earth. And uh, the reason we're going to do that is because his life should be the model by which we live our lives in this new year as well you guys grow up in a church that maybe recited the apostles creed regularly so a couple of you guys maybe here i'm just going to read a portion of it i believe in jesus christ his only son our lord he was conceived by the power of the holy spirit and born of the virgin mary he suffered under pontius pilate was crucified died and was buried so what's missing in there his life right we, we jump from his birth to his death in the creed now let me before you tweet at me. Like, I'm totally on board with the creed. The apostles, I'm very pro Apostles' Creed. It's an unparalleled summary of the Christian faith for the last 1,700 years. So, like, I'm on board with the creed. And like all brief, succinct doc, documents or statements, it can't cover everything about the Christian life, and it doesn't try to. But I do think it's striking that sometimes as Christians, we focus uh, or we, we neglect the importance of looking at Jesus' life looking at how he lived and faced the same situations that we face. You know, in Hebrews 4, it says that he has faced every temptation that is common to man, yet was without sin. Every challenge and every problem that you and I are going to face this year at its root are going to be things that Jesus faced, and yet he responded to, in a perfect way, without sin. I want to persuade you that Jesus' life is worth learning about, reflecting on, and studying Because in it, we see what it means to be truly human and to please God. He's been where we are. He's faced the temptations that we will face. And yet he did it in a way that is perfect. Jesus has the empathy and authority to guide us through this life, this decade, this year, and even this week. And so we're going to begin this look at Jesus' life over the next couple months today by looking at the only story in the Bible that talks about Jesus as an adolescent. It describes some events from when Jesus was about 12 years old. Let's start in Luke 2, verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. All right. I'm going to say something that's really obvious, but, you know, sometimes you've got to do this as a pastor. Growing up as God's son... Meant that Jesus grew up. Growing up as God's son still meant that Jesus had to grow up. Even as the eternal second person of the Trinity, Jesus matured. Jesus learned how to shave. Someone taught Jesus how to read. Well, there's never been a time that Jesus did not exist. Jesus grew taller physically throughout the year. And Jesus had to learn how to do things that you and I have learned how to do. Jesus was fully human in addition to being fully God. He didn't descend from the heavens as a fully formed 30-year-old. Jesus was 12 years old. Jesus learned all the same things that you and I have to learn about what it means to be human. Now, we talk about that a lot at Christmas, the, the mystery that God could become flesh and dwell among us as a baby. But there's something, I don't know, maybe this is just for me, there's something innocent or perfect about a baby that we can sort of neglect their humanness, that this story of Jesus being 12 sort of brings to me emotionally to the surface of like, Jesus probably had acne, right? <laughs> about that? I, I, don't, I don't say that disrespectfully, like I, or, or unreverentially, I hope. But that, that Jesus experienced fully what it meant to be human. Now, some people haven't liked this idea of, of fully human Jesus. And there have been times in church history where uh, theologians or heretics have pushed against it and tried to undercut the humanity of Jesus. One example was in the 3rd century, a group called the Gnostics, who were really heavily influenced by Greek philosophy that taught that everything that was physical was bad, and everything that was spiritual was good. And so they took that framework and they said, well, if Jesus was really holy, he couldn't have been that physical. And so they wrote their own versions of some of the Gospels, about 200, 300 years after Jesus' life, to try to undercut the idea of the humanity of Jesus. One of them is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. You can find it on Google if you want. And one of the things it talks about there is Jesus' it's a whole set of stories about Jesus' childhood. And they try to make up these fantastic stories about how Jesus wasn't really a child. He just looked like a child. And he could do things like turn clay pots into pigeons. And he could turn his enemies into toads. And kind of all things that we would have done when we were 12 if we had (laughs) cosmic powers, right? But that's not what the Bible says, right? The Bible says that Jesus was fully human, that he grew up in wisdom and in stature normally, like you and I do, yet without sin. Imagine the patience that that would have required. 30 years of ordinary life as the Son of God. Jesus' growing up was marked by decades of the normal rhythms of life. You know, in the rest of the Gospels, we're going to see this exciting part of Jesus' life, these last three years of his life from the time he was about 30 to the time he was about 33. And it's going to be marked with everything that you could hope for in terms of an exciting life. He's going to lead a a revolution, a kingdom. People are going to follow him. People are going to say they'll lay down their lives for him. He's going to do miracles. He's going to feed thousands of people with just a few loaves and fish. He's going to have powerful enemies that are seeking to destroy him. He's going to live and die an eternally significant death and be resurrected back to life. That's an exciting three years but that's only the last 10% of his life. The first 90% is so ordinary, right? You guys ever watch the show 24? I don't think it's on anymore, but back in the day, all right. I love the show 24. If you didn't see it, it's basically Mission Impossible, same, same idea, you know, a bad guy is overwhelmingly powerful and he's gonna destroy the world or at least Los Angeles and only one person can stop him and they're gonna be able to stop him in superhuman ways that no one could actually do but they're going to accomplish and never sprain an ankle, right? Um, And and 24, the conceit of the show 24 was that it's 24 hours in one day, and each episode was an hour long, and it represented an hour in that day. And so there were all these small miracles that would happen over the course of the show, like during a commercial break, Jack Bauer would drive from Long Beach to Beverly Hills, and there'd be no traffic, right? (laughs) Like, how do you do that? (laughs) It's amazing. Um, And in all the episodes of 24 I watched, like, he never had to go to the bathroom. He never went through a drive through A telemarketer never called his phone. <laughs> he never sprained an ankle. Like, nothing ever normal happened in his life. And sometimes that's kind of what we think life is going to be like, right? At least in our adolescence and, and maybe even after. We think that life is going to be endlessly exciting, or at least following Jesus should be. That we should always experience his presence in a profound way. He should lead us on an adventure of faith. Our ministry should always be successful. You know, Alfred Hitchcock said that life... uh, Alfred Hitchcock said that movies are life with the dull parts cut out. I love that description of movies. Life with the dull parts cut out. And sometimes we judge our lives against movies, and we think, why isn't our life that exciting and that interesting? Tish Warren, in her really helpful book, A Liturgy of the Ordinary, talks about how much of the Christian life is framed and shaped by what is most ordinary and most normal. She, in her book, she says that uh, all of us are going to spend 90%, 99% of our life in ordinary tasks. And if we act as if those have no impact on our following of Jesus, we're fooling ourselves. So much of Jesus' life is not marked with the exciting miracles, but the ordinary faithfulness of following God. As Warren says, everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes but so much of our life is dishes, isn't it? I guess I have three young kids at home. It seems like it's always dishes. Of course, though, it's in those days, it's in those ordinary things that our loves are shaped and our worship is shaped. In this new year, there may be exciting days, but the months and the years in front of us will be marked by ordinary, faithful opportunities to follow Jesus. And in those faithful days, in those faithful decades... We prepare ourselves for the pivotal moments. But it's 99% one and 1% the other. And for Jesus, these ordinary days help him to increase in wisdom. And as verse 52 says, increase in wisdom and in stature and in the favor of God and of man. Jesus makes the most of his ordinary days. He's not impatiently pushing against them. But in those 30 years, he learns what it means to be human and to listen to the voice of his father. I love verse 52, that's why I put it on your outline. Uh, I know it's in the Bible, but I just wanted to highlight it for you in case, in case you missed it. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and of man. I think those four categories, you know, the, the physical life, the intellectual life, the spiritual life, and the relational life, those four things really frame what it means to be human. I wonder, you know, Jesus grew in those things, and if Jesus needs to grow in these things, then how much more do you and I, like if there was room for Jesus to grow in wisdom, there's definitely room for you and I to grow in wisdom. If there was room for Jesus to grow in the favor of God and of man, how much more for you and I? So which of those four would you want to grow up in this year? Now, I realize, you know, most people in here are adults. Most of us think of ourselves as grown-ups. But growing up is a lifelong process. So, so what about you? Like, with God this year, which of those four areas might he most call you to grow up into, a maturity more this year? All right, well, let's talk about the story of Jesus in the temple here. We don't have all the details on how Jesus grew up into maturity, but we do have this one scene, which starts in verse 41, of Jesus as a 12-year-old, and how his maturity bumped up against the expectations that some people had for him. Luke 2, 41. Now his parents went on to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Just a quick description of what they're talking about here. Um, The Feast of Passover is one of three holy days in the Old Testament when all faithful Israelites were expected to return to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place the temple was, and they would have, if you want to put it crassly, kind of like a special church service uh, each year for the Feast of Passover. If the Feast of Passover sounds vaguely familiar, it's the feast that Gia celebrates with his disciples the night before he's betrayed and crucified. It's the feast that he transforms into what we consider our communion service today. But as a boy, it's one of three feasts that Jesus would be expected to attend. Well, I say expected, but you know, even though it says that all faithful Israelites were supposed to do this, the rabbis of Jesus' day narrowed it significantly. They said, well, if you live far away, and Galilee, where Jesus was from, would be considered far away, you don't really have to come. And if you're a woman or a child, you don't really have to come. And if you're poor and it'd be difficult for you financially, you don't really have to come. And so most people didn't. It's striking that Jesus' whole family goes every year, it says in Luke 2. This is a sign of Joseph and Mary's piety and the sort of home that Jesus was raised in. And then in verse 43, when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. Why did Jesus stay behind? Now, I think if you would have asked me at the beginning of this week to tell you the story from memory or from my experience in Sunday school, because we love teaching the story to kids in Sunday school, because it's about Jesus as a kid, you know what I would have said? Oh, this is the story about when Mary and Joseph left Jesus behind. I would have kind of thrown them under the bus. Like, this is the bad parenting story from the Bible, right? (laughs) Or at least it's the biblical basis for forgetting your kids in children's ministry for 20 minutes while you talk to your friends on the Um, (laughs) couch. But that's actually not what the Bible says, Right? The Bible doesn't say that the parents left him behind. Do you see what it says? It says that he stayed behind. Let me ask you, do you think Jesus was smart enough to know what time the caravan was leaving? I think so, yeah. Like if if he can debate all the leading biblical scholars of his day in the temple in a few verses, I think he can remember what time they're supposed to go and figure out a sundial, right? No, Jesus is making a choice here. He's creating tension in this story between what's expected of him and uh, what he chooses to do. Now let me ask you another story. Does Jesus sin in this story at all? Does Jesus do anything wrong? No one wants to answer that at any of the services this morning. No, okay, let's just let me be clear about this. Jesus does not sin. There's nothing Jesus does wrong in this story or any story. And that might be hard as a parent to admit because Jesus deliberately makes his parents' life difficult. <laughs> Some of your parents are nervously laughing here and hoping I won't teach this story to your kids, right? Jesus perfectly honors Joseph and Mary, and that includes staying behind when he knew it was going to mess up their plans. Because look what happens in verse 44. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. Before I became a parent, I was kind of incredulous at this story. I read this, and I was like, what kind of terrible parents forget their kid? And now as a parent, I'm kind of like, well, I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) Like, it it could happen. I mean, I don't want it to happen. I'm afraid it'll happen. But, you know, sometimes you assume things and you assume your kids are going to do things. And um, especially if Mary and Joseph maybe now had other children, which by the time Jesus is 12, would probably be likely from a chronology standpoint. Um, And also at this time, likely the men and women would have traveled separately uh, on a journey like this. And so it would have been natural for Mary to assume that Jesus, as a 12-year-old, as a almost a grown man, he's probably traveling with the men. And Joseph probably assumed what a lot of dads do and just say, well, I'm sure his mother's taking care of him. And uh, it's, not, it's not a shot. It's confession. Um, and so it's understandable that they get to the camping location for the night, and Mary and Joseph reconnect and realize How many kids do we have? One, two, ah, we're missing one. Okay, let's line up again. One, nope, we're definitely missing one. And they find, when they don't find him, the next day they travel back to Jerusalem. So day one they go out, day two they come back, day three they look for him and find him in the temple. Verse 47 says, "'After three days they found him in the temple, "'sitting among the teachers, "'listening to them and asking them questions. "'All who heard him were amazed "'at his understanding and his answers.'" On the third day, they found him. Is this a foreshadowing of the resurrection? Uh, Maybe. I don't know. The Bible's not explicit about it, but if it is, cool. But what I think is fascinating, right, is they find him in the temple, and he's listening and asking questions, and they're amazed at his answers. So let me ask you, is Jesus asking and learning, or is he answering and teaching? Yes, right? I think it's both. I think it's both. I don't think that he's completely on the learner side, right? They're amazed at his understanding. But he's also not totally on the teacher's side, right? He also is growing in wisdom and stature. He's learning from others. There is someone who is Jesus' Saturday school teacher, right? There's someone who's teaching him what it means to know the scriptures. Now, a quick aside. I, I do think Jesus was very smart. Let me just make this obvious. I think Jesus, in fact, was the smartest person in every room he was ever part of. And he would be the smartest person in this room. And if he went to your job, he would be the smartest person at your job. Jesus would be a better engineer than any engineer you've ever worked with. Jesus would be a better lawyer than any lawyer you've ever worked with. Jesus would definitely be better at my job than anyone I've ever worked with. <laughs> well, it's kind of a gimme. But, but I, say that, I say that because we don't, we don't always think of Jesus as smart, right? As someone who spoke at least three languages, as someone who uh, created logic puzzles that people could not understand unravel, who told stories that 2,000 years later still captivate the imagination, that Jesus was the smartest person in every room he went into. Jesus, I think, would have scored a perfect score on the SATs and the GRE. It's important for us to recognize because sometimes we act as if our modernity has caused us not to need to lean on Jesus for direction in our life, as if we are too smart to follow his ancient wisdom. Jesus, in addition to being the smartest person, being the one who's teaching, he is also learning, the passage says. He's asking questions. Again, going back to the heretics that I mentioned earlier, the Gnostics, they didn't like this idea. They didn't like the idea that Jesus would need to or could learn from another person. And so in their version of when they rewrote the Gospel of Luke, they changed what this passage says. Instead of to say he was learning, they said he was doing all the teaching, that he was the one who always knew all the answers. He never had anything to learn from anyone else. Well, that's not what the Bible says, right? The Bible says that Jesus had things to learn even as you and I do, even as he was the smartest person in the room. Maybe we could say because he was the smartest person in the room. All right, let's get into verse 48 and his parents' response. By the way, how do you think you'd want to respond if you were his parent right in this moment? If you were Mary and Joseph, like, all right, you just hold that in your mind. How would you want to respond? Well, this is how they did respond, verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. It's a very biblical way of saying, why did you do this to us? Right? Where's your loyalty? Where's your fidelity? Why are you making life hard? Can you picture yourself as Mary and Joseph in this scene? We took two weeks off of work to walk all the way here. We had to gather all the kids and get them to walk up a giant mountain to make it here. Like, no one else in our community does this. And we were faithful to God, and you were making things harder, right? Your dad's going to miss four extra days of work because we had to come back to get you. We can't afford that. Why did you do this to us? So, did Jesus sin? He made his parents' life more difficult, right? Is that sinful? No, I, he didn't sin. And you and I, those of you who are parents or grandparents, should not assume that our kids are in sin when they display independence from what we want them to do. Now, they're not Jesus. They might be in sin. (laughs) My kids, uh, well, my daughter, definitely not, but the other ones, maybe. (laughs) But I I don't want to assume their independence or my independence from other people's expectation is by nature sinful. There is such a thing as holy independence. And Jesus heightens attention in this moment. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't have anything to apologize for. And in verse 49, he asks them this question, why were you looking for me? Did you know that I must be at my father's house? Or if you have an old King James Bible, that I must be about my father's business. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. When Jesus' parents found him in the temple, they expected that Jesus would put their priorities in his life first. And Jesus explains to him, as he heightens attention, that his loyalty ultimately is not to them, but to God, his Father in heaven. You know, as Americans, we may not appreciate how, like, radical this is, that a son would say to his parents, especially a firstborn son, my loyalty is not to do what you expect of me. It's to do what God expects of me. But for that culture, and for most cultures around the world today, that's a radical statement, right? In some some cultures, that would be considered a disrespectful statement. How could you not do what your parents expect you to do? But Jesus is teaching something so profound here, that what they want from him, even what they expect from him, is not what they need from him. That their expectations of him are not their deepest need. Their deepest need is that he would be their Lord and Savior, even if they don't recognize that yet or know that yet. Man, that is so important for you and I the year to come. Because we have expectations of God, we have expectations of what we want from Jesus. And sometimes we might even, like Mary, yell at him and say, Why are you making my life difficult? But what we need from him is to be the leader not a docile follower. We don't need Jesus to do what we want him to do. What we need is for him to guide the way and for us to follow him. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't shirk his responsibilities to his parents as an eldest son. One of the last things he'll do on the cross is make sure that his mother is cared for after he dies. But what Jesus does do is say, I am not going to just live under your expectations. I'm going to live in independence in a way to provide what you ultimately need from me which is salvation. What you and I need most from Jesus is to be our Lord, not obedient to our expectations of him. This is a hard lesson to learn. It's a lifelong lesson. In fact, Mary and Joseph, Mary, by the way, who like 12 years before had written one of the most theologically profound statements ever, the Magnificat that you can read in in Luke chapter one. This is not a, a dumb woman at all. It says she failed to understand what Jesus was talking about. It's because this is a lifelong lesson to learn. And we see that, and we kind of expect the passage to end at verse 50 as this fracture of relationship. Like Jesus is too smart for his parents, and so they must divide apart, right? No. No, in verse 51, it says that he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. What kind of brilliant 12-year-old submits to parents he is so much smarter than? A wise one. And a godly one. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Why is Jesus' choice to be submissive to his parents significant? Because it is a living out of the ordinary and faithful life of submission to God. The way that Jesus completes his mission over the next 18 years is by ordinary submission to his parents. Not teaching radically in the temple, but living as a son of a carpenter. Think about that. Think about how much patience that would have required over the next 18 years over the next 18 years of doing as you're told by people that you are smarter than and wiser than, simply to fulfill all godliness. It's been said that Jesus as a baby could not die for your sins. Jesus as a baby could not die for your sins or my sins. Why is that? Not because he wasn't holy, but part of Jesus' life was to fulfill the law, to fulfill all righteousness. And over the 30 years of Jesus' life, before his public ministry, and his ordinary moments, he fulfills the law perfectly without sin. He faces every temptation that you and I face, yet without sin. And so when he goes into his public ministry and ultimately to the cross, he's able to be a perfect sacrifice for your sin and mine. This includes obeying his parents, even when they don't understand and even when they're not wise. It includes years of close proximity with siblings and neighbors, forgiving them even as he knows that they need to be forgiven. This year we're gonna explore the exciting and miraculous and wonderful times of Jesus' public ministry. But I want to start with the ordinary life, the life that's so much like the one you and I live, because in it we see Jesus' faithfulness as a model for our own faithfulness. So as we take communion in a couple of minutes, uh, we're gonna do it a little bit differently this year. We're gonna have you uh, come forward as an act of rededication, of rededicating your life to Christ. We do it this way once a year on, in January, as a start of a new year, of of choosing, and it's up to you whether you come forward or not, choosing to say, I want to live the life that Christ has offered. I want to uh, receive the gift of new life that Christ has offered to me. A couple questions for you to think about and pray about, maybe as we're singing or, or in the week to come. What ordinary growing up do I have in front of me this year? And how can you practice the presence of God in this? You might look at verse 52 especially to think about that. And then secondly, Jesus chose to be submissive to his earthly parents when he didn't have to be. Who are you called to be submissive to this year as a means of growing in grace? And then there's a prayer there from the devotional that Amanda mentioned earlier. Here's what I really want you to take away as we, as we come to communion. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life, but it was a very ordinary life for the first 30 years before his public ministry. And in that, he gives us a guide of what it means for us to follow him all the ordinary days of the year in front of us. Can I pray for you? Jesus, I thank you for the example of your life, the example of your wisdom and of your submission, and the example of your holiness. God, I confess that so often um, I want what is exciting in this life rather than what is ordinary. God, would you shape our loves around what is uh, truly good and holy and following you. Amen. If those who are assisting with communion could come forward at this time, Uh, there's going to be an usher who's going to come down the center row and we'll dismiss uh, half of you guys to go this way, one row at a time, and then the other half this way. It'll take a little longer than normal, so be patient. Don't worry, we're, we're all going to finish at the same time. But um, at the end, as you go through, uh, take a piece of bread and a cup, and then uh, on either side there'll be a leader from our church uh, to pray with us in small groups, um, and so active dedication of this year to the Lord. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread... He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. He said, this is my body, given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Jesus, we take the body and the blood today as a reminder that it is your life that we walk in, it is your holiness that we walk in, and it's your righteousness that allows us to come to God the Father. Amen.